Our sermon text begins in verse 14. And while you're opening there, I want to make a brief note. Most of you know, uh, unless you're visiting with us, that for the past two years, I've been in what our church is calling the pastoral residency. It's a church-based pastoral training program. So since January of two years ago, coming up, uh, I've been involved in that program. And what I want to do now is publicly say thank you all so much for all of the support and encouragement and prayers that I've gotten from so many of you, lots and lots of you. So thank you for all of that and the ways that you've encouraged Cassie. Um, And want to solicit your continued prayers as we are very actively praying about what the Lord would have us to do as far as the rest of our life. And we're open to anything that he wants us to do. So we don't really know. So pray with us. Help us. God will give us wisdom, and we know that. We believe that. But we want you to pray for us about it too. And then also I want to say thank you to uh, the elders of our church for the truly massive amount of time that they've spent pouring, pouring into Cassie and I over the past two years. It's a good thing, and they feel, and they're right, that it's a stewardship from God to train up men to preach the gospel and to be shepherds and pastors. And they are very faithful in doing that, and that's by God's grace, but I want to thank them for it. And last, I think it's good to, though she's not in the room, give a public thank you to Cassie, my wife, who has truly been an excellent wife, especially over the past two years. In countless ways, she's selflessly served our family uh, in the whole residency process. So thank you to all of you. And what I want to do now is read the text. It's Luke chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 14, and I'll read through verse 21. So if you'll open your Bibles, hopefully you're already there, I'll read. You can read along with me. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. God, we pray you'd help us now. Fill us all with your spirit. Cause your word to go forth in truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin by saying that uh, one of the books that I was to read for the pastoral residency was a book entitled The Holy Spirit by a pastor in South Carolina named Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, I just want to say up front that his book has been a tremendous help to me in preparing uh, this sermon. So it's highly recommended if you have time to read it uh, or the, the willingness to read it. I would recommend it highly to you. It's called The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. So I want to ask a few questions as we begin to think. We're ha- having a sermon, if you look on your bulletin, entitled The Spirit of Christ. So it's a sermon largely about the Holy Spirit. And I want to ask you, what enters your mind when you think about the Holy Spirit? What comes into your mind first? We have several visitors with us today. We have several lots of members here with us. And so I'm sure we have a large amount of different things that come into our minds when we start thinking about the Holy Spirit. Some of the things that came to my mind as I was thinking about this were some strange things like uh, when you grow up and you you have the, the spiritual gift surveys and you're trying to find out what sort of spiritual gift the Holy Spirit has given you. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying sometimes that comes to mind. Or what about the gift of tongues? Have you ever walked into a church service and people are speaking in tongues and you've never seen that before and you are uh, uncomfortable to say the least? 
well, that's associated with the Holy Spirit in a lot of people's mind. Or what about the televangelist and being slain in the Spirit? What do you think about that? He's on television. Maybe uh, you're not sure what to think about that, but surely associated with the Holy Spirit, it says slain in the Spirit. Or the old term, King James, translates Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. So maybe that brings strange ideas to your mind about the Holy Spirit being a ghost. We have Halloween in our country and we talk about ghosts and is he somehow similar to a ghost that we would imagine from a children's book or something else? What comes into your mind thinking about the Holy Spirit? I know God's given our church recently over the past several years lots of grace in thinking about the Holy Spirit, so maybe some of these things come to your mind. Things like revival. We had our Fellowship of the Burning Heart group this summer uh, on a book called Revival. And one of the things that stood out to me most was the need of the Holy Spirit to do anything good. So maybe that comes to your mind. I hope that it does. Or maybe the idea, even in our culture, most people have heard the phrase that your body is a temple of the Lord because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And that's true. That's good. Maybe that comes to your mind. Or uh, the last one we've heard one of our elders say really often, uh, talk to us often about asking for the Holy Spirit because if our earthly fathers who are evil know how to give us good things, surely our better than them heavenly father will give us the Holy Spirit if we ask. So maybe that comes to our mind too. I mentioned the idea of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And lots of us are familiar with that idea from places like 1 Corinthians 6 or John 14 and 16, those places in uh, one thing in preparing for today that I thought about is how is it that the Holy Spirit got into the business of indwelling human beings? When did that begin? Has he always been doing that? Why does he do that? How'd that start? Did that happen in the Old Testament? Old Testament saints? There's some information in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit. But how did he get into the business of doing that? There's some sort of difference in the New Testament about the way the Holy Spirit indwells people. And what I want to ask you is, how did that change? What happened when that happened? We know about folks from the Old Testament like Samson or Saul. And Samson, if you remember the story about him, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And he had this superhuman strength to break large objects and kill lots of people at the same time. It was almost like what you might imagine is a superhero movie or something. He had superhuman strength because of the Holy Spirit. Or you remember Saul, the first king of Israel, he was anointed with the Spirit. He was God's anointed one. But the Holy Spirit would come and go and come and go from Saul. So somehow, the Holy Spirit has gotten into the business of indwelling human beings. And we're going to get to how here in a little bit. And then the last question of introduction is, you see the title of the sermon in the bulletin, the Spirit of Christ. And so, is there any information in the Scripture, anything from God, that would give us a clue into the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit? We know that they're both members of the triune God. And we know that they're both active in the world. We know for sure the Spirit was active in the Old Testament. I've mentioned some things. You know, Genesis 1 He was hovering over the the waters, the Holy Spirit was. But is is this the case? The Spirit is active in the Old Testament and Christ is not yet born. And then Christ is born and he's active and doing things. We read about him in the Gospels and in the New Testament. And then Jesus said, if I don't go, I won't send you the Holy Spirit. You won't have the Holy Spirit. He won't come unless I go. So is it like a a tag team and a trade-off? Here's Jesus in the incarnation. I guess for you all, it's this way. Cross, resurrection, Jesus ascends and leaves, and then he sends the Holy Spirit. So there's a switch. Is that true? Or is there more of this, more interaction than most of us realize? And the answer is yes. It's a rhetorical question, I suppose. So that's what I want to ask. Is there any relationship between Christ and the Holy Spirit? And that really is the subject of today's sermon. It's called the Spirit of Christ. And we're going to take a look at the ways in which Jesus and the Holy Spirit interact and some of the implications of that. And so before we turn to Luke 4, which we're going to do in just a moment, uh, I want to say one more thing about the subject of biblical theology. 
Uh, It's also referred to commonly as redemptive history. And maybe some of you are familiar with those words and maybe not. It's a simple idea. It has to do with the big picture of the whole Bible, the big picture of all of history, like from eternity, I guess for this, you guys, it's this way, eternity, no, this way, past to eternity future. What's the big picture? So in my mind, I'm a visual fella, and I usually imagine things visually and have this big timeline that has this way and this way, and there's arrows on the end. And somewhere in the middle, though maybe not exactly in the middle, is Jesus when he comes, and then there's the cross and the resurrection, and things change going that way, and they're different before. So there's something different. And the reason that matters is because it informs the way you read your Bible. Let me give you a common example. You know the story about the walls of Jericho. We sing it to our children. The walls of Jericho fell down. God gave Joshua and the rest of the Israelites a commandment to march around the walls of Jericho seven times, and if you know the story, eventually the walls fall down. Biblical theology, or redemptive history, these words, inform how we should read those texts. So, a silly question, but it helps to illustrate is, should we read the Old Testament account of God instructing Joshua and the rest of the Israelites to march around Jericho and go and march around Jericho? Should we do the same thing as if those words were written directly to us? And that's an obvious one. Of course, the answer is no, because that was written to a specific people in a specific time, and we've moved on in history. God's moving us forward. That's a very obvious one, but the questions do become somewhat more difficult if you start to think about things like the Old Testament law. Should we obey all of the things written, say, in Leviticus as if they are written directly to us? We have Leviticus. We don't discard it for certain. But should we obey it as if it was written directly to us? And the answer to that question has got to be no if you take into account the old sacrificial system. Should we obey, literally, the Old Testament sacrificial system? Should Ben Hinkie go buy a lamb and offer it up for his own sins? No, he should not because Christ came. There's something different after Christ comes. So I won't belabor the point any further, but what I want to ask, having laid that background, is I mentioned to you the large timeline going on and on and on, and things are changing, and God is directing history. What, if you zoom in on the Holy Spirit, what does the timeline of the Holy Spirit look like? Is there anything different back in the Old Testament or eternity past, when Christ came, after Christ came, now, eternity future? What does his timeline for all of biblical theology look like? Have you ever thought about that before? Or maybe you, like me, sort of assume that the things described in the New Testament are very much what he has always been like. And certainly God does not change, but... uh, there are some things that are worth considering regarding uh, biblical theology and the Holy Spirit. So now let's turn our attention to Luke 4. I want to give, before we really turn our attention to Luke 4, a little bit of background to where we're at in Luke 4. And uh, Chris mentioned it, the baptism of Jesus occurs one chapter earlier. If you flip back and look, that's in chapter 3, two little verses, verse 21 and 22. So if you'll flip back, I want you to look at it, and I'm going to read it to us here in just a moment. That's Luke 3, 21 and 22. It says, Now when all the people were baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. So there's the account of his baptism. And there's two main uh, parts. You see it says the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove. And I asked if there are any any interactions between Christ and the Holy Spirit. And here's one. There's more. There's one before this. But this is one. The Holy Spirit is descending upon him uniquely, unlike anyone ever has been before in bodily uh, form. And John, in John the Baptist, in John the Apostle's gospel, says that the Holy Spirit descended and remained on him. So not like Saul, not like Samson, when the Holy Spirit would depart and go away. Like Christ, now, here, we read in Luke 3, when the Spirit descends on Christ, he's not leaving. 
And I'm majoring on this because it very much informs the remainder of what we're about to read. And the second thing you want to see there is the words spoken directly from heaven by God. You, to Christ, first person, second person, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. So certainly all the people around were seeing a testimony of God's favor and delight and anointing of the Son of God, but also from the perspective of Christ, here he is as a man living, receiving an anointing from God as well as certain confirmation of God's favor and anointing of him as the Messiah. That's what's happening. This is a redemptive historical. There's a point. Something's happening and things are going to be different moving forward. So that's where we just... Uh, we just saw that in Luke 3. And then briefly, I want you to look at Luke 4.1, and then we'll get to our text. Luke 4.1, you have the baptism, then you have the genealogy. The next thing that happens after the baptism is the temptation of Jesus. And Luke 4.1 says he was just baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now look what it says about him. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. I'm not saying, and the text does not say, that Jesus was totally devoid of the Holy Spirit prior to his baptism. That's not true, and we'll get to that at the end of today's sermon. But there was something that happened that was unique, in which he received from God a special, unique, fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit in public fashion that he did not receive prior to this time. So, he's baptized in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. He is now full of the Holy Spirit and being led around by the Holy Spirit. So now let's turn to our text, Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee, here it is again, in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding districts. So you're already, I hope, getting the point. Jesus Christ was anointed with and full of the Spirit of God. Yes, there's interaction between Christ. No, it is not a trade-off at the ascension. So look at our text. I want you to use your imagination in a healthy way of what's happening here in the narrative of Christ returning to his hometown. It says he went back to his hometown where he grew up. You can imagine where you grew up. And he goes into the synagogue, which is the Jewish place of worship. It would be like walking in here this morning with a crowd of people. And the attendant hands him a scroll. This was customary. It says, as was his custom. This is normal life. Hands him a scroll, and what he hands him is the book of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus didn't choose Isaiah. The attendant chose it and gave it to him. But if you look carefully in verse 17, Jesus did very intentionally choose the text that he was going to read out loud that we read before. It says at the end of the verse, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. He found it on purpose. He selected it. And we know, if you look down at the end of the text, verse 21, after he reads it, here's what he says. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we all know that very often, When someone says something, they certainly mean what they said. But if you say a certain thing, or if you say it in a certain way, you also mean lots of other things. And we're going to find out there are other things that he also meant besides only the words on the page. And we'll talk about them and see what they are. So imagine the scene. He's handed the book. He finds the place. It's in Isaiah. It's a scroll, so I suppose he didn't turn to it. He found it somehow, and he reads the text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. And then he goes on and finishes it. And look in verse 20. Use your imagination. And he closed the book, or the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's like a moment when no one talks because something very serious has just happened. Because... He's saying things other than the things that he just said. So whatever he read from the book of Isaiah 
was serious in their mind. Imagine mouths open, eyebrows raised, everybody staring directly at him. He just said that. And what he said, not to belabor the point too much, is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And this should be no surprise to us, as we've already seen his baptism, Luke 4.1, Luke 4.14. He's going around full of and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now what he's saying is, what is happening to me now, the way that I'm living full of the Holy Spirit, is a fulfillment of something that was previously promised in the Old Testament. So... Something I wasn't aware of, and I want to ask you if you're aware of, is did you know that there were promises in the Old Testament from God who cannot lie that when the Messiah came, he would be full of the Holy Spirit? Did you know to expect that? I didn't know to expect that. I had never collected the list of verses that we're about to go through and realized, oh yes, one of the key characteristics of God's Messiah is that the Spirit of God will rest on him uniquely, fully, without limitation or hindrance. He will possess the Holy Spirit in fullness. This is promised by God. This is the reason that when he gets done reading it, everyone in the room is looking at him with eyes fixed. So there are three texts. They are the ones that Chris read for us at the beginning of our service, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, and Isaiah 61. They're all very similar, and they all have the same format. We're going to go through them briefly here in just a minute, but I want to say a few words about them before we do so that it will be most profitable. I said they all have the same format. It's the same format that you see in verse 18 and 19 of our text. They start with, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And if you look in our text, you can see the Spirit of the Lord being upon him and doing things like preaching the gospel to the poor and release to the captives and all these things, they're not a list jumbled together. There's a flow. And if you look, you'll see it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he, God, anointed me. So there's a reason. What did he anoint him to do? The rest of the things listed in the text. So it's a linear order. It's a cause and effect. It's a therefore. Because he's full of the Holy Spirit, he will be able to do these things. Because he has the Holy Spirit uniquely and fully, he will do these things. That's the same format for every one of the texts that we're about to look at. So, let's look at them one by one. The first one that Jesus quoted here in our text is Isaiah chapter 61. You can stay in Luke 4. There are a few variations in the text, and for uh, continuity's sake, we'll all be in Luke 4 to look at it. So, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So, A lot of information there. How can we absorb it in a way that's helpful and not overly bogged down? We'll use the format we just described. First, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me uniquely. We've covered it. Next, what will he therefore be like? And if you were to try to summarize the things that he reads from the book of Isaiah there, you could say, I will bring relief to the destitute. People in deplorable situations. To them, I'm going to save them. I'm going to bring good news, relief, mercy, help. That's what's coming. So, release to the captive, sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed. It's all the same emphasis. A good summary, in Matthew 4, which is uh, another fulfillment text, an Old Testament passage, quoted about Christ. Here's what it says about him. Those who sat in the land and shadow of death, upon them... A light dawned. It's a perfect summary of what we're talking about. They sit in the land and shadow of death. Imagine people sitting in the dust, in darkness, no hope, totally miserable, and light comes. That's what Jesus is saying. Because I have the Holy Spirit, I can do that. Most of you know uh, Nelson Mandela, a fellow from 
South Africa. I kept saying South America to Cassie last night. South Africa passed away recently, and he is very, very popular, especially among South Africans, as you'd imagine. Reason being, he had a lot to do with trying to end apartheid, which was racial segregation in South America. Uh, A similar example would be Martin Luther King here in Memphis. Those people are beloved by the masses, generally. And what? Why? Because they fought for those who were oppressed. They're trying to release people from oppression, not direct slavery. Oppression is the best word. They're releasing them. And as a result, those people are beloved. This is our Savior. He is better than Nelson Mandela, than Martin Luther King. Imagine Moses in the Old Testament going directly into Pharaoh, looking him in the eye and saying, all the enslaved Israelites, let them go. No one says that kind of thing. But Jesus Christ is the true and better Moses who comes and says, all the people who are enslaved by Satan, all the people blind and in the kingdom of darkness, get them out. You have help. You're free. And I want to say, last, about this text, that these things that he's saying, like, proclaim release to the captives... Or, use an easier one, recovery of sight to the blind. There is no doubt he does mean that literally. He is going to heal blind people, and there are accounts in the Gospels of him doing that. It also means, for sure, that every person is born blind, blinded by Satan, can't behold the glory of God, walks around all of life groping, not seeing what they ought to see, And Jesus came so that they could have, so that you and I could see and be released. So when he says this, God can't give good news to people apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like saying, I'm coming to die on a cross, to take all your sins away, to rise from the dead, free you from Satan, give you spiritual sight, stop Satan's oppression to you preach the gospel to you, give you good news. That's what he's saying. And if you remember the format of our verses, what he's saying is, I'm going to do all that because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now I want to pause before we go on to Isaiah 11, which is where we're headed in just a minute, and say if you look at the people in the text who are receiving this much-needed mercy from Jesus... There are four groups of people. They are the poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. That's the kind of people who are going to receive mercy from Christ. And what I want to say is, if you do not feel at all like you are in a situation of great need, that is a very dangerous place to be. Because the mercy that Jesus Christ brings, he only, exclusively brings for the needy. He did not come to save people who already think that they are healthy. That's what he said. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. So, in as much soberness as I can, I want to warn you that if you live your life feeling that you are all right, I'm not sure that I really need any sort of religion or God or any of those things, and that's how you view it, and you're just all right going your way, living this way, it means that you're blind and you don't know it. And it means that you are not in a position where you are ready to receive mercy from God. So God's word to you today would be repent. Fear God. Trust Christ. Turn away from sin and self-sufficiency. Okay, we can turn to Isaiah 11. Uh, If you'll actually turn there in your Bibles with me, we're going to read the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 11. And the rest of them will be a bit briefer than Isaiah 61 that we've just done. But look in your Bibles at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 5. You'll notice again, you will see the same format. The Spirit of God followed by 
a description of what he will therefore be like. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That means he's David's seed. He's in David's family. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So if we take a general look at the text that we just read, what's the main point? He'll come from the line of David, which Christ did. You can read the genealogy in Luke 3. We just didn't touch it, but passed right by it. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then the second half of the format that we keep seeing is, what will he then and therefore be like? And if you try to generalize this chunk of Scripture, what will the Spirit-filled Christ be like? The idea is the Holy Spirit will give him wisdom. He will receive wisdom from God. All those words that you read in the list, almost all, are very similar. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. He won't judge by what his eyes see. How will he judge? By the wisdom that comes from God. He won't make a decision by what his ears hear but from the wisdom from God. Okay, the second half of the things that he will be like is he will strike the earth and slay the wicked. The spirit-filled Messiah will be a man who will reign in judgment. He will slay the wicked. There's one more of the three Isaiah texts. It's in Isaiah 42. If you'll turn there with me now, you really could include verse 1 to 9. We're not going to read all of them. We're going to hit the highlights of that section. This is another one. Isaiah 11, we just read, is not directly quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah 42 is directly quoted explicitly in the Gospel of Matthew as being about Christ. And we'll we'll look at that at the end of today's service. But Isaiah 42, starting in verse uh, 1. Notice the same format. Behold, my servant... Whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. And we'll stop there. Okay, things to note, same format, except for a small part at the beginning, which is truly magnificent. Imagine the heart of God delighting, the soul of God delighting in the Son of God. Imagine the great capacity of our God to delight in something. And if it was all the way filled up, How much can God delight in Christ? That's what it says. My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. And this one, you'll note, sounds very much like the baptism of Christ we just read from Luke chapter 3. The Spirit comes on him, and then it says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased a very direct parallel of his baptism in whom my soul delights. Okay, so there's your format. He will have the Spirit of God. I have put my Spirit upon him. Then we'll try and summarize the therefores. How will he be? What will he be like? What will he act? What will he do? A good summary will be I couldn't come up with a very good phrase. I said patient meekness. Willing to be wronged. Uh, not quick to take his own vengeance in a personal manner. So the context in which it's quoted, I uh, uh, mentioned to you before, it's quoted in Matthew 12. 
And Matthew 12 is one of the familiar times when there's a Sabbath dispute with Christ and the Pharisees. And there's a man whose hand is withered. It's the Sabbath. The man's there. The people are saying, is it lawful to heal on a Sabbath? Are you going to do it? Because if so, we're going to take you down. They're trying to accuse him is what they're doing. And so he's angry about this, and he gives them wisdom from God, from the Holy Spirit, and says, every one of you people has a sheep. And if you're walking along with your sheep on the Sabbath, and all of a sudden down goes your sheep into a pit, and it's going to die, you don't look at the sheep and say, sorry, sheep, it's the Sabbath. You have to die. You pick it up. And so he gives them that wisdom, exposes their hypocrisy and says, so then it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He heals the man with a withered hand. He stretched it out. It's restored to health, just like the other one, it says. And this, of course, like you'd imagine, makes the Pharisees angry. It says they went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Bringing it full circle, what would Jesus do if he found out that people were going to try to destroy them, destroy him? He might destroy them first, mightn't he? People do that in our world all the time. Well, our text says, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That's the way it's quoted. It says, he found out what they were going to do. He withdrew from there and he told everybody, don't tell anybody who I am. Instead of this self-promoting, I'm going to defeat you and prove you wrong and vindicate myself, he just leaves. And that's what the text is saying he will be like. That's how it's quoted as his fulfillment. He leaves, therefore, you know, Isaiah 42 is about him. He won't quarrel nor cry out. Okay, so you guys got it. He's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. He's going uh, to be patient and meek and humble and not self-aggrandizing and have to take his own revenge. So, those three texts, Isaiah, we did 61 first. So 61, 11, and 42. What's the main point of what we've been saying so far? That was heavy sledding. I know that. But it does help us now to get the main point. Here's the main point. He will be full of the Holy Spirit unlike anyone has ever been. Different, unique. Therefore, he will be several things. Let me remind you. He will bring mercy and good news to those who are in terrible situations. He will, from the Holy Spirit, receive wisdom to act wisely, to choose wisely, to speak wisely, to expose the Pharisees' hypocrisy. He will not fear men. He will love the approval of God. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will be a Godward-orientated man. He will have, as A pastor in Mississippi has said, a high and holy view of God that dictates all of his life because he's full of the Holy Spirit. Okay, last one is, more than one of them mentioned, he will have a special anointing to strike and slay the wicked in judgment. So he's not only meekness. Our text, the word, if you read there uh, in Isaiah 42, I believe it is, says he'll be patient, he'll be meek, until the time of judgment. So, here he is. He reads Isaiah 61. He looks him in the eyes. He tells him, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The same man in Isaiah 61 is also the man in Isaiah 42 and the same man who's in uh, Isaiah 11. Remember we said, what's he saying beyond what he said? And for sure... If the man is the same, he is saying, I'm the man in all three texts. I'm going to be like this. He's saying, I am the Messiah of God that you have been waiting for. That should be obvious from the text. That's what he's saying. What else is he saying? We talked before about biblical theology or redemptive history and the big timeline that I kept referencing before. He's saying something has happened now that's different than anything that has ever happened before. I uniquely possess the Holy Spirit in a way that no one ever has. So we asked at the beginning, is there any relationship between Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? And now, I think, should be obvious. He was uniquely anointed with the Holy Spirit. But what I want to turn to now is I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the manhood of Jesus Christ. And you'll see in a minute, it is very much related to his relation to the Holy Spirit. 
Let me explain why. But let me start with saying, I fully believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. When he became a man, he did not cease to become any less than eternal, supreme, full God. He is still the man through whom God created all things. I'm not saying he is not any of those things. I am also about to say he was a real man. So, his deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 2.9 says, All the fullness of deity was, twel- was pleased to dwell in him. All the fullness of the Godhead in Christ. Or Hebrews 1.8, The Father to the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay, that's well established. It's not the subject of the rest of our sermon. The question that I want to ask you is, if he was a man, and this man lived a perfect life, and he did, and he accomplished the gospel, the salvation of countless souls from condemnation and eternal hell, he did that, and he was a man, From where did he receive the power and ability to do that? You could ask it a different way using a word, reservoir. Most of you are probably familiar with that word. It means, I looked it up on a dictionary website last night, a large body of water from which people depend to get water and pump it elsewhere to use. It's a supply, a storehouse with Christ. He accomplished the salvation of souls for all eternity against a situation in which there could be no greater odds. What reservoir did he depend on to get the power to do it? Was it his own deity? Because we know, I just said a moment ago, he created the worlds. He made all things infinite in power. Is that where he got his power from? Cassie and I have been talking about this for months now, which is part of the reason I chose to preach this text And you could ask it a different way. If you imagine his life, temptation, obedience, suffering, the things that he did. Did he, because he was God, get a free ride, so to speak, to make temptation not quite as bad as temptation can be? Was it just a little easier for him because he's God for crying out loud? Or was it the same? Was it just a formality so that the scriptures could say he was tempted in all things as we are? He was tempted in form and in name, or was it real? Think about his obedience. Was it easier to obey God? Philippians says he became obedient to the point of death. You can't get more obedient than that. So obedient that I will die. We're not like that. What reservoir did he use to get the power to say, yes, I will do that, and then to actually walk in those steps and do what he did? Okay, what about suffering? Was it less painful, less uncomfortable? Was there less apprehension for him because he knew it was going to be all right? Or did he really have pretty serious apprehensions about the pain and suffering he was about to undergo? You could go a different angle and say, what about casting out demons? He did that a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Very common practice. One of the very uh, key signs of his ministry was casting out demons. And what I want to ask you is, did he do it because or under the authority of himself being God? My own power, I am going to cast out all the demons. Or was there a different reservoir for his ability to do that? I don't want to belabor the point. You could ask the same question for miracles. How did he do that? Well, he made the world. Of course he can do miracles. What about these mysterious verses like Hebrews 5, chapter 8, that says, although Jesus was a son, listen to this, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And people will ask questions, and I've struggled with, how can God learn to obey? That does not make any sense at first thought, does it? You can ask the same question about Luke 2.52. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. So we have no problem. It's easy for us to understand he grew in stature. Well, he was born an infant. He grew. He must have gotten taller. He was a man eventually. 
easy. What about growing in wisdom? He got wiser as time went on. Was he full of wisdom as an infant? I have an eight-month-old, eight and a half months. Was he then in that moment exercising perfect wisdom in all things? Or was he an awful lot like a baby? He was like a baby. And so the question is, really, if you try to summarize all of that, I'm not trying to find out, is he God or is he man? He's God and he's man. No less on either account. What I'm trying to ask is, how did Jesus Christ of Nazareth experience life? What was his day-to-day like? What was it like for him? How did he experience these things? We know he got hungry. Was it real? Yes, he was hungry. What was his experience like? That's what I'm trying to get at. So I want to try to help us provide some answers and then tie it all back in and say why it's really relevant that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So what I want to suggest is for most of us, probably, I'm thinking, assuming, supposing, his life, his experience in life was much more like that of a man than we typically imagine. The world does not believe that Jesus is God. So in our own minds, and rightly so, we major on the deity of Jesus Christ. But then it becomes difficult for us to understand his manhood. And what I want to suggest, like I said a minute ago, is that probably for most of us, his day-to-day life, even his beyond day-to-day into accomplishing the gospel, his experience of those things was much more like the experience of a man than we normally think. Let me persuade you. We read about his baptism. How can he be anointed with the Holy Spirit? He was. And from that point forward, we read Luke 4.1 and Luke 4.14, when somehow this man is now full of the Holy Spirit, and he is in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's being led by the Spirit. Why does he need to be led? Because he functioned as a man. We talked about Isaiah eleven forty two sixty one, and we won't say those more, but you saw the format. He will be full of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he will be a certain way. He will receive these things from the Holy Spirit. Or if we use another text in Isaiah 40, which is certainly about Christ, because the following verses say things like, I didn't stop giving him my cheek to pluck out my beard and turn away my face from spitting, and I set my face like a flint. Right before that, Here's what it says, first person. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, which means the tongue, you could think of it as the tongue of one who has been discipled or the tongue of the learned. He's taught me, therefore I can speak. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Listen to this. Think about Jesus Christ as a man. Are you ready? It's Isaiah 50, chapter 50, verse 4. Jesus saying, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Can you imagine him? Okay, Father. Okay, Spirit. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? Teach me about the Sabbath. What does your word say about the Sabbath? The Pharisees are trying to trap me. Help me to know. Teach me. Give me wisdom. Listen to that. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Or, I asked you before about casting out demons, Matthew 12, 28 truly settles the issue. It's in another dispute, same chapter, and we'll get there at the end of our service, with the Pharisees. They accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebul, who is the ruler of the demons. Yes, you can cast out demons, but you do it by demonic activity. Here's what he said. Several other things, but I want to hit this one verse. If I, Jesus says, cast out demons, which reservoir? By the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He cast out demons by the Holy Spirit's authority and power. Or you could read Acts 10.38. Peter to Cornelius. This is when the gospel comes first to the Gentiles. Peter says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with two things with the Holy Spirit and power. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed for God was with him. So 
The answer to all those questions I asked is that obedience was not easy for Jesus. He obeyed the way that we are to obey by a power that is not our own, enabling us to do it. He was a man. Suffering for him was very real and very painful and uncomfortable, the way that we imagine suffering to be. He felt it. He knew it. He depended on God to endure it. The Holy Spirit was upholding him. Temptation, was it real? Was it real temptation? I'm not asking, could he have sinned? I'm saying, what was his experience like? Was it difficult? Did it feel tempting? Was it hard? He sweat great drops of blood on his knees in a garden, bursting blood vessels in his forehead. Yes, it was real. That's how you can make sense of these things, because he was a man. He grew in wisdom. We just talked about Isaiah 50. He awakens my ear to listen. God was teaching him all the time. He got wisdom from God. He learned how to obey. I mentioned Hebrews 5.8. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience He was, as Hebrews 5 would imply, one of us. He was a man. That was his life experience. Again, I am not saying he was not fully God. He was. But his life, as a man, he lived like a man lives. It's what Philippians means when it says he emptied himself. He lived the man life for us. Briefly, to give you the whole picture of his whole life instead of isolated verses, I want to give it to you in order, truly briefly. His conception and birth, was his own authority or was he upheld by a different reservoir? Luke one thirty-five: to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit superintends the birth of Christ, even his birth. Or the baptism, we won't re-go over it again, we've already been there, but you can see, again, the Spirit anointing him. Life and ministry, all from baptism forward, his public ministry, we've covered it. He cast out demons by the Spirit of God, he did miracles by the Spirit of God, he obeyed, got wisdom, all those things. What about his death? What if we go forward in his life and don't just look at the events prior to the gospel events, but we look at his actual death? Is there anything in the scriptures that talks about the relation of Christ to the Holy Spirit in his death? As far as I can find, there's just one. It's in, that's explicit. It's in Hebrews 9, chapter 14, and it's a comparison between the old sacrificial system and the cleansing of your conscience because of the forgiveness of sins and the new sacrificial system, the one sacrifice in Christ. It's 9.14, here's what it says. Well, before it says, if the old ones could cleanse the flesh, and it continues, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let me read that phrase again. Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Or you could read about his resurrection. Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of of holiness. Or 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Or you could read 1 Timothy 3.16, vindicated in the spirit. On and on, you can read. Glorification, what about that? What about now? 1 Corinthians 15.45, to me, a mysterious verse, but very alluring in my opinion. He's comparing Adam as a federal head and all the people under him, and Christ as a federal head, and all the people under him. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. It's a resurrection chapter, right? What about Jesus after he was raised? The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. I don't want to pretend that I understand everything that's meant by that verse, because I do not. (laughs) But uh, there is... And we'll see in a minute from Romans 8 something very unique about Jesus Christ in his resurrected state that has to do with his relationship with the Holy Spirit. Current reign, okay? Here it is, Romans 8. Listen to this text. What happens is he uses some phrases interchangeably in a way that you wouldn't think that he could do. Here's what it says. Romans 8, 9. 
You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. We're used to that. The spirit of God dwells in you. Next sentence. Think what you think he's going to say, and then he doesn't. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But you're just talking about the Spirit of God. Now he's saying the Spirit of Christ, referring to the same thing by different phrases. Now saying the Spirit of Christ gets even worse in the next one. Look at this. Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you. So first the Spirit of God is in them. Then the Spirit of Christ is in them. Then Christ himself is in them. So how do we make sense of that? The answer is that Jesus Christ is in us by his Spirit. That's how we can make sense of those things. So Sinclair Ferguson in that book that I referenced to you would say they maintain their distinctness in personhood, Christ and the Spirit. They are not now one in the sense that they are no longer maintaining that difference. But what he says is there is an economic equivalence, which means to say, which is to say, they do the same thing now generally. There's an economic equivalence. Jesus Christ possesses the Holy Spirit in a way that no one ever has. He is, as Second Corinthians 3 would call him, the Lord of the Spirit. He reigns and rules by the Holy Spirit. Now, the two main things I've talked about today are Jesus Christ being full of the Holy Spirit not relying on his own deity to save you and me by the gospel and to live the rest of his life. He was full of the Holy Spirit, depended on the Spirit. Here's the other thing we've been talking about. Manhood. He was a man. Why are those, things, those two things so closely related? The answer to that question is, if you think like it's so easy for us to do that his life and gospel were enabled by his own power, his own self-sufficiency, which no doubt he would have had the ability to do, but he did not. If you think that's where he got power to do it, you will therefore not think of him as a real man. He will be not like you. He will be very different from you in that sense. And all the things that you read in Hebrews matter very much when you start putting those two thoughts together. Like Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, he had to be made like, listen to this, like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. The flow of thought and the flow of logic is He's just like you and me. He knows what it's like to live a man life. He lived like we live. He knows suffering. He knows pain. He knows temptation. He experienced it the way that you do. Therefore, he can be merciful to you. He doesn't lord his kingly authority over you as a knave and why can't you obey better? That's not him. He knows obedience By the power of the Holy Spirit, he knows suffering and pain as a man and can be merciful to you. He can be faithful to you. He won't deny you. Or absolutely as clear, if not more clear, is the end of Hebrews 4, which is the similar application. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. If you reverse it, it's a little easier, at least for me, to understand. He was tempted in everything, just like you and me. He knew our temptations. He knew our weaknesses. He knew our pains, just like us. He knew by experience, not just knowledge. Therefore, just like you'd imagine, he can sympathize with you when you're weak. He can sympathize with you when you're in a moment of temptation. And it is not easy to obey, and you do not have in yourself the power to muster up strength to obey. That's the implication. So if you don't know that all the power that he had came from the Holy Spirit's unique, special, upholding, anointing power, you won't think he's like you. 
and you won't know him the way that you should. You won't worship him rightly. There is a very unique glory to him becoming a man and living the life that we were all meant to live as a man. It's why he can be, listen to the phrase, you know it, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's what it's trying to say. He's a man like you and me. That's the main application I want to make today is that he knows all your pains and your struggles. He knows what it's like to live a life that is difficult. He knows what it's like to be tired and to feel pain and to have to learn wisdom. I know you guys don't feel wise. Think about a concise theology of the Sabbath. That's hard to figure out. The Pharisees were sure enough confused about it, and Jesus was not. He knows what it's like to listen from God and to learn, and he can deal gently with you. We have just a couple of minutes, and the last thing I want to do by application is to look at Matthew 12. I've been promising all along that we would get there, and now we're going to get there. If you'll open your Bible to Matthew 12, what I'm hoping is that as a result of the Word of God that we've been discussing this morning, is that you will now read your Bible most accurately in a hopefully new way for you. You will see Jesus Christ in a new light. God, though he was, living the man life as it meant to be lived, as it was meant to be lived. So look at Matthew 12. I've referenced lots of these accounts, so we won't have to cover them in much detail, but I want you to hopefully learn how to read your Bible, understanding that he was full of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that happens, and I'll summarize for us, is that they go through the grain fields on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath according to the Old Testament law. The disciples pick the heads of grain and eat. That would be like miniature harvesting. They're working according to the Pharisees. Look, teacher, your disciples do what's not lawful to do. They're breaking the Sabbath. They should die, is what they're saying. And Jesus rebukes them. And how does he do it? Where did he get this wisdom? From the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. Two examples. The first one, he gives an account of David, like I've already mentioned to you, about when it was a life or death situation, he entered the Sabbath, he ate the consecrated bread. It was against the law to do it, but David was going to die, so he did it. And Jesus says, by implication from the words here, it was right for him to do it. Here's another one. This, to me, is wisdom par excellence. There's nobody like him. Listen to what he says. Pardon me. Verse 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Small little phrase. Here's his logic. On the Sabbath, no one's allowed to work. But what about the Levites? They're the priests. Their only job is to work in the temple and do the work of the ministry, the worship of God, cleaning the vessels, offering the sacrifices, all these things. It's their vocation. And they're allowed to work and do their job on the Sabbath. That's what he's saying. And it's not wrong for them to do it. So you're wrong in thinking that all work is evil and wrong on the Sabbath. That's not true. He, imagine him reading the Old Testament and saying, huh, that's their only job and they're working on the Sabbath. That must mean it's not mainly about work. And so what I want to highlight to you is to say that the man was taught by God this sort of wisdom. The Holy Spirit taught him. That's why he was so wise. Let's move on to verse 9. It's the man with the withered hand. Again, I've already said enough about that one probably, but it's the sheep example. You don't let your sheep die on the Sabbath just because it fell into a pit and you're not allowed to work. You guys are hypocritical. You're going to let this man sit in misery? It is okay. It's good. It's right to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful, he says, and he heals him. Think about the healing. Where did he get the power to do it? Did he rely on his own deity? No. God... He went about healing all who were oppressed by the devil and doing good, for God was with him, Acts 10.38. Then you get the Isaiah 42, where he learns they're going to kill him, and instead of refuting them and conquering them, he withdraws and says, don't tell anyone who I am. Patient meekness is what we called it. Then it quotes Isaiah 42. You move on. The last thing, a man who's demon-possessed, he's blind, he's mute. He is truly in a pitiful situation. It just says as if it was effortless. He healed him. The meat man spoke and saw 
And you might wonder, well, how do we know he did it? The verse I quoted to you before is the same chapter, just a few verses down, Matthew 12, 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They said, you're casting them out by Beelzebul. He said, no, I have the Holy Spirit. I'm casting out demons by the Spirit. So that's enough uh, going through Matthew 12. We'll stop there. I hope you see him more clearly as one who can relate to you. He can sympathize with you. He knows your weaknesses. He can be merciful to you because, like our culture would say, he's been there. He knows. He walked those footsteps before you did. He accomplished the whole gospel that way in the power of the Holy Spirit. The salvation, salvation of sinners. Talk about difficulty in obeying. If you are hanging from a cross with nails in your hands and people are below you saying, If you just come down from there, then we'll believe that you are the Messiah. Come down. We have no doubt he could have done that. He said before, I could at once ask my father to appeal to him and he would provide me with legions of angels to rescue me. Where did he get the the grit and the grind to obey God? He got it from the Holy Spirit. He enabled him and upheld him. He was raised by the Spirit. We can worship him that way.